0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Class War Battlefield Podcast. Please do me the honor of supporting this work that I am doing. I've been doing this work now for free on your behalf for, my God, 11 years. 5, 10, 20, 50. If you can afford it, please do. Cash at me at dollar sign CWB Podcast. CWB podcast cash app it cwb podcast also also hit me up on paypal cwb podcast all the way across the board y'all help me out help me out help me out thank you for donating and enjoy the show Definition. Woo. Woo. Woo.
1: Definition. Hello everyone and welcome back to Top 10 Trends Politics You know the old saying, you might not have an interest in politics, but politics certainly has an interest in you. Corruption runs rampant through almost all political systems and believe it or not, the US is actually one of the least corrupt political systems in the world. Politicians have been corrupt since the dawn of time because man has been corrupt since the dawn of time, but there are some who take the bar of corruption to whole new heights. And we're gonna take a look at them today. These are 10 insanely corrupt politicians throughout history. Special shout out to my hometown of Chicago. Go f**k yourself. Number 10, Crassus. Marcus Linnaeus Crassus was a Roman general and politician who played a key role in the transformation of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. Amassing an enormous fortune during his life, Crassus is, except for Caesar, considered the wealthiest man in Roman history. A political and financial patron of Caesar, Crassus joined Caesar and Pompey in the unofficial political alliance known as the First Triumvirate. Together, the three men dominated the Roman political system. Their alliance did not last long, however, as individual ambitions and egos separated the three men. While Caesar and Crassus were lifelong allies, Crassus and Pompey disliked each other, and Pompey grew increasingly envious of Caesar's spectacular successes in the Gallic Wars. Crassus's death permanently unraveled the alliance between Caesar and Pompey. Within four years of his death, Caesar would cross the Rubicon and begin a civil war against Pompey. According to legend, Crassus made most of his fortune through fire and rapine. He would repossess property of his victims and then cheaply auction it off. That's really dirty. It's called prescription. His wealth is estimated to have been about $9 U.S. dollars. He would build houses next to places he wanted to buy, then burn down the house he had built to damage the property value. That's impressive. That's ballsy. Number nine, Prince Menshikov. Prince Alexander Danilovich Menshikov was a Russian statesman whose official titles include Generalissimus, Prince of the Russian Empire, Duke of Iorza, Prince of the Holy Roman Empire, and Duke of Kosel. He was a highly appreciated associate and friend of Tsar Peter the Great, and he was the de facto ruler of Russia for two years. Around 1706, he began a conflict with Andrew Vinius. Vinius lost all of his lands and goods. He abused his powerful position and his corrupt practices frequently brought him to the verge of ruin. In the last year of Peter's reign, new allegations of fraud by Menshikov came to light and he was obliged to appeal for protection to the Empress Catherine. It's rumored that the prince may have usurped Peter in order to put Catherine on the throne, but these are just rumors. The actual truth is lost to history. Number eight, Jabez Balfour. Jabez Spencer Balfour was an English businessman, British Liberal Party politician, and fraudster. In 1982, he was the center of a local scandal over the failure of a series of companies which he set up and controlled, starting with the London and General Bank and culminating in the Liberator Building Society, leaving thousands of investors penniless. Instead of advancing money to home buyers, the Liberator had advanced money to property companies to buy properties owned by him at a high price. Clever. After the swindle was discovered, Balfour fled the country. He was arrested in Argentina by Inspector Frank Frost of Scotland Yard in 1895. Balfour was tried at the Old Bailey and sentenced to 14 years penal servitude, not as sexual as it sounds, most of which was served in harsh conditions in Portland Prison. He was released in 1906. He died at age 72 on a train from London to Wales, heading for a job as a mining consultant. So he's like a Bernie Madoff, but for Victorian era London. Makes sense. Scamsters all over the timeline. Number seven, the Alcmianity. The Alchemionidae were a powerful noble family of ancient Athens, a branch of the Nelides who claimed descent from the mythological whatever, Alchemion, the great-grandson of Nestor. The first notable Alchemionid was Megacles, who was the Archon of Athens in the 7th century BC. He was responsible for killing the followers of the Cyclon of Athens during the attempted coup of 632 BC, as Cyclon had taken refuge as a suppliant in the Temple of Athena. As a result of their actions, Megacles and his followers were the subject of an ongoing curse and exiled from the city. Even the bodies of his buried followers were dug up and removed from the city limits. That's bizarre. They were allowed back into the city in 594 BC. Later, they would claim to be exiled again following Sisterius' return in 546 BC, so as to distance themselves from possible accusations of complicity. But evidence shows that they were Archon during those years, meaning they were completely complacent with the atrocities taking place at that time. The family disappeared after Athens' defeat in the Peloponnesian War. They tried to ally with the Persians after they were accused of impiety because they were trying to ally with them while the Persian War was going on. Number six, Boss Tweed. William Mager Tweed, often erroneously referred to as William Marcy Tweed, oh, widely known as Boss Tweed, was an American politician most notable for being the boss of Tammany Hall. Oh, is this what, uh, is this what Gangs of New York is based off of? He made the Democratic Party into the political machine that it is today and played a major role in the politics of 19th century New York City. At the height of his influence, Tweed was the third largest landowner in New York and a director of the Erie Railroad, the 10th National Bank, and the New York Printing Company, as well as proprietor of the Metropolitan Hotel. Tweed was convicted for stealing an amount estimated by an alderman's committee in 1880. 18- 1977 to be between 25 and 45 million dollars from New York City taxpayers through political corruption Although later estimates ranged as high as 200 million dollars unable to make bail He escaped from jail once but was returned to custody. He died at the Ludlow Street Jail good His greatest influence came from being an appointed member of a number of boards and commissions his control over political patronage in New York City through Tammany and his ability to ensure the loyalty of voters through jobs He could create and dispense on city related projects and also violence number five Huey Long. Huey Long Jr., self-nicknamed the Kingfish, was an American politician who served as the self-nicknamed, that's funny, who served as the 40th governor of Louisiana from 1928 to 1932, and a member of the United States Senate until he was assassinated in 1935. As the political leader of Louisiana, he commanded wide networks of supporters and was willing to take forceful action. A Democrat and outspoken populist, Long denounced the wealthy and the banks. Initially a supporter of FDR during his first 100 days in office, Long eventually came to believe that Roosevelt New Deal, did not do enough to alleviate the issues on the poor. He developed his own Share Our Wealth program, which would establish a net asset tax. Under Long's leadership, hospitals and educational institutions were expanded, and textbooks were now bought with tax money rather than individually by parents. He remains a controversial figure in Louisiana, however, with critics and supporters debating whether he was a dictator or a demagogue. The success of the Kingfish is largely attributed to his preying off of the lower classes in Louisiana. I see now. Okay. Also, he was assassinated, so that doesn't spell too much for him, you know, but... While his dictatorial means and motives violated American norms, long had a genuine concern for the common people of Louisiana. Oh, oh, so because he was a communist, it's okay, huh? That's how it's gonna be, Wikipedia. All right, that's fine. Top 10 most corrupt... In websites when it comes to explaining history correctly. Number four, Nicolas Fouquet. I'm not saying his full name. Nicolas Fouquet, Marquis de Bellely, Vicomte de Melun et Vau. That's his full name. I said it. I did it once. Was the superintendent of finances in France. I see where this is going. From 1653 until 1661 under King Louis XIV. He had a glittering career and acquired enormous wealth, but fell out of favor. Accused of percolation, which is inappropriately administrating the state's funds and harmful actions to the well-being of the monarch. The king had him imprisoned from 1661 until his death in 1680. By 1661, Louis XIV was already set upon Fouquet's destruction. His disgrace was secretly decided in May 4th. His wife was not allowed to write to him until 1672, and she was allowed to only visit him once in 1679. The former minister bore his appointment with fortitude and composed several translations and devotions in prison. Number three, Hessian. Hessian was an official of the Qing dynasty who was favored by the Qianlong Emperor. He was a member of the Plain Red Banner and known as the most corrupt official in Chinese history. He was born as the son of a Manchu military officer and was selected to go to the most privileged school for Manchu aristocratic boys. In 1772, he began work at the Imperial Palace. Hessian enjoyed almost complete freedom from his actions. He became openly corrupt and practiced extortion on a grand scale. His supporters within the imperial system followed his lead, and his military associates prolonged campaigns in order to continue the benefits of additional funds. He abrogated powers and official posts, including that of Grand Counselor, and regularly stole public funds and taxes. Taxes were raised again and again, leading to very great suffering of the people. Unfortunately, their suffering was compounded by severe floods of the Yellow River, an indirect result of the corruption, where dishonest officials pocketed funds that were meant for the upkeep of the canals that led to the floods. Rising prices of rice simply led for many to starve to death. The widespread corruption and nepotism was the start of a century that led to the direct downfall of the King Dynasty. Number two, Richard Nixon. Richard Milhouse Nixon was the 37th president of the United States when he resigned from office, the only US president to do so. He had previously served as the vice president and prior to that, a US representative and senator. Pretty famous instance of corruption would be the Watergate scandal. In fact, so famous that any sort of scandal is called something gate. The term Watergate has come to encompass an array of often illegal activities undertaken by members of the Nixon administration. Those activities included dirty tricks, bugging offices of political opponents, and the harassment of activist groups and political figures. The activities were brought to light after five men were caught breaking into Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate complex in Washington, DC. Nixon downplayed the scandal as mere politics, calling news articles biased and misleading. In 1973, White House aide Alexander Butterfield testified under oath to Congress that Nixon had a secret taping system that recorded his conversations and phone calls in the Oval Office. These tapes were subpoenaed by Watergate, special counsel, and Nixon provided the transcripts of the conversations, but not the actual tapes, citing executive privilege. When the tapes were eventually collected, there was an 18 and a half minute gap. Rosemary Woods, the president's personal secretary, claimed responsibility for the gap, alleging she had accidentally wiped the section while transcribing the tape. Oh, how convenient. Needless to say, pressure was so severe on Nixon for impeachment and punishment that he resigned instead. What missing emails? What what, what political scandal? And number one, Albert B. Fall. Albert Bacon Fall was a United States Senator from New Mexico and the Secretary of the Interior under President Warren G. Harding, infamous for his involvement in the Teapot Dome scandal. The Teapot Dome scandal was a bribery incident that took place in the United States from 1921 to 1922. Secretary of the Interior, Albert Bacon Fall, leased Navy petroleum reserves at the Teapot Dome in Wyoming and two other locations to private oil companies at low rates without competitive bidding. Oh, that's really bad. The leases became the subject of a sensational investigation by Senator Thomas J. Walsh. Fall was convicted of accepting bribes from the oil companies and became the first cabinet member to go to prison. No person was ever convicted of paying the bribes, however. Before the Watergate scandal, Teapot Dome was regarded as the greatest and most sensational scandal in the history of American politics. It damaged the reputation of the Harding administration, which was already damaged by its controversial handling of the Great Railroad Strike of 1922. A storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This
0: is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody.
1: This is an NBC News Hotline special report.
0: We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom is precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. about forget about me. I don't want
1: this much is clear we must rebel this is our country we have always lived in it we were happy then you came we have to protect ourselves we have to save our country we have to fight for what is ours Hello, ladies
0: and gentlemen. I am your Brother Brian Meredith, and welcome to this Class Warfare Battlefield podcast segment. Um, you just heard from uh, Brian Taylor Cohen. George Santos hit with fatal blow to his political career. Look, I could, I could produce an hour how George Santos (laughs) represents the core spirit in the modern GOP, that he is a manifestation of everything that the GOP actually stands for. This is not to say that there aren't decent GOP supporters. It's just hard to find a lot of those decent supporters within the apparatus of the party, which has been wholeheartedly captured now by the most ghoulish intents in this country. Now I could really speak to uh, speak for an hour on Santos, but that's not necessarily what I want to do now. In the video, well, the audio portion from this video that you just heard, there was a clip from the Nassau County um, GOP. Now, I live in New York State. Nassau County is uh, downstate to me, if memory serves me correctly. And um, I know nothing about their local politics. But what I found interesting in the statement that the chairman gave was how cookie cutter it was. And what I mean by that is that um, he, there are certain things that he was looking for in a candidate, including the pre- the the uh, pedigree. Went to a um, you know good high school, good college. Sure, he may have been uh, okay, maybe not even a good college. You know, he might have been poor, but he went to a you know good college. Worked in finance. Okay. extracurricular activities while in college, um, meaning he probably made some great connections. Though he started out poor, he, you know, um, was able to pull his bootstraps up and, you know, climb the ladder of success. And his heritage was a plus, Latino. Looked apart, by the way. But had enough white characteristics to please, you know, the white community. And trust me, ladies and gentlemen, that's a big deal. I like, you know, I, I appreciate um, Colin Powell and Condi Rice, but the reason why both of them are exceptionally beloved by the GOP, Colin Powell obviously passed away now, but both of them were very white. They were very white, and the GOP loved that. They didn't have that non-white kind of... ugh, that they don't like. Now, granted, they've they've let their bar down a little bit more, probably because... Um, You know, you have right-wing trigger monkeys who love rap music. You know, I remember several years ago when Tommy Lauren posted a TikTok where she was rapping some, some, I mean, it, it wasn't raunchy raunchy, but it wasn't, you know, Barbie girl type rap music. And I remember thinking of a friend of mine named Ark, who I, uh, he he moved to my school, uh, I think it was my last year there, before I graduated, senior year. And he told the story, he was from Arkansas, and he told the story of how these, you know, Southern-loving, Confederate-loving, uh Confederate flag waving you know proud to be white boys would load up in, oh, I can almost, I, I can barely even get through it cuz it's so funny would load up into their um pickup trucks playing back in back then it was DMX not M&M this was 2000 so they could have been bumping M&M but DMX You have a generation, in other words, who, you know, the, the rap influence is too great. So, that whole notion that, you know, there can't be black GOP members who don't have some black swag with them, is it's done. Uh, but, back to the original point. The cookie-cutter nature of what a Republican it's supposed to be, is the point of this segment. They wanted somebody who was not necessarily a minority, but it helps because uh, the GOP is desperately, desperately trying to fight this idea. Not that they're anti-Semitic, because the GOP is going to support Israel, but that they're racist. So, you get this minority candidate who has a poor background, who, on paper, and I mean literally, listen to what (laughs) the Nassau chairman, the GOP chairman said, um, on paper, has a perfect story. Started off poor, worked hard, went to a good school, worked harder, went into finance, worked at one of the biggest uh, financial institutions in the country, so much so that they had to get bailed out, if I remember correctly, back in 2008, because they were too big to fail. Anyway, um, has... Connections to immigrants, obviously, uh, inside the country, immigrant communities outside the country, has everything and a little bit more that the GOP would want for a rising star. And, though he has a lot of good white characteristics, he has some tan to him, so... Look, we don't have a problem with black and brown people. Obviously, that paper was wrong. He did not, he did not have everything that they wanted. Uh, look, look, ladies and gentlemen, it's it's funny to me. It is funny to me, and I'm trying to take it serious, but it is funny to me. So, a couple of years ago. Um, starting in 2020, actually, before, um, I got sick, and for a while after I, uh, after I came, went back to work, you know, after recovering, um, I was listening to a series of books on conservatism, the GOP, things like that, and it was while I was going through Rick Perlstein's book, um... The Invisible Bridge, that I realized something. The GOP, the Republican Party, died, died in the 1960s. And in fact, it probably would have died earlier if it hadn't been for the great work of Eisenhower, the story there is quite interesting, so I had heard years ago, and I've never been able to confirm this that and in fact, my father had first told me this, and then I heard it again years later. Eisenhower came back from World War two and some of his work after World War II. And begin to explore running for president. He was a good politician, and he knew how to get things done. He understood power, things like that, so, you know, it was understood he was going to run. Now, obviously, clearly, he did not run because of his obligations to the country. In 48. Plus, the time just wasn't there. But, most people knew that he was going to run for 52. And most people in the know, in politics, knew once he ran, he was going to win. It was unlikely that whoever ran ran against him was going to beat him because of his reputation in World War II. The only thing was, and as I understand it, I've read some stuff that says that, you know, Eisenhower was a Republican. But the thing was, because of what had happened, and again, this is some stuff that I haven't been able to get confirmed, but I've heard it. Because of the opposition the Republican Party had taken to the New Deal and to certain aspects of World War II, Eisenhower was somewhat disenchanted not altogether though with the 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 slow drift of the party especially since he saw the new deal as powerfully important and and being as I apologize <laughs> and uh he saw the New Deal as being instrumental in saving the country from going down the same uh, pathway that Germany and Italy had gone through. So, with that in mind, he had started agitating, sort of agitating, advocating more so, I suppose, for um, the Republican Party to get behind some of the more popular aspects of the New Deal. Yes, he still believed that big business had a role to play in the economy, he didn't believe in nationalization, but he understood that there were certain areas in civil life that the government needed control over, more so than business, because people needed those things to not only live, but to live comfortably. And it had been shown through history that when you allow those things to be placed into the hands of corporations, the corporations would not be good stewards of those things so as the budding leader of the Republican Party and you can see this by the way in his in the 1952 um platform for the Republican Party uh Eisenhower pushed the adoption of many um New Deal ideals with a hope of reorganizing the foundation of the Republican Party around some of these ideals, including the idea that um, labor unions were not your enemy. Including the idea that things like Social Security weren't evil. Obviously, we know Eisenhower won in '52. Eisenhower was conservative on many levels he absolutely was but one aspect but but with his acknowledgement of the necessity of the new deal and what the new deal brought to the brought to the country as a whole um he really distinguish, distinguished himself away from what had been a rabid uh minority in the republican party during World War Two, but was increasingly gaining strength through the 50s. There's a little-known history that I think still needs to be written about the internal struggle within the GOP during the 1950s. The internal struggle that meant, there is there is part of the GOP that wanted to roll back the New Deal. And there was a part of the GOP that wanted to integrate aspects of the New Deal into who the Republicans were going to be. Now look, back in the 1950's, you had a more inclusive Republican Party. You had what some would call radical Republicans, liberal Republicans, progressive Republicans, And then you had your conservative um, Republicans and your moderate Republicans and your wingnut Republicans. To be fair, you had that with the Democrats too. However, the internal struggle within the GOP took on a new life with Eisenhower's ascension um, to the presidency, but more specifically, when the liberal courts begin to pass civil rights legislation, that's when there began to be real polarization within the Republican Party. People had to make a choice and they did. Eisenhower, moderate conservative that he was, came down on one or the other side depending on the case. But he was more likely to not act than to act. Now, many of you may be like, well wait a minute, not everything has to do with race. Look at the history and you tell me that I'm incorrect with what I just said. Moving on, though. It wouldn't be until Eisenhower could not run for president any longer that those schisms would really start to show up in the GOP. And in 1960s, in 1960s, should I say, When Kennedy defeated Nixon, those schisms, which were just tiny cracks, maybe even hairline fractures, split open. Because now you had a president who said he was going to supposedly do something about civil rights. I know the legacy. Get into that another time. At the same time, you had prominent Republicans saying either the federal government needed to do something about it or they didn't have to. At the same time, you had prominent Republicans sticking their necks out and saying we need to fight the radicals, we need to fight the communists in this country, and we need to ensure that the Civil Rights Movement isn't being taken over by both. And then at the same time, you had prominent Republicans saying the civil rights movement is already compromised, it is a threat to national security, we need to deal with it as such. And that doesn't even talk about the economic stuff that was happening. Because there were still arguments happening surrounding what the New Deal should be, how far the country should implement it, and how far the country should go into developing the New Deal programs. In fact, part of the reason why the Civil Rights Movement existed was because uh, the New Deal programs had been utilized so successfully with white people that white people were building up their wealth. Black folks were saying, well, wait a goddamn minute. You're building everything for them. Why not build for us too? We're paying taxes. Again, another time. As the GOP moved through the 60's, the attempt by people like Eisenhower to refocus the foundation of the party around New Deal ethics failed. Failed. And when moderates could not... Moderates who, by the way, in the Republican Party, and, and liberal Republicans who played instrumental roles in writing and passing civil rights legislation, when they were unable to secure power positions in the party, due mostly to the corporate influence in the in the Republican Party and the re, and and corporations' unwillingness to cede ground to the to the assertion that the New Deal was necessary and that these social, civil changes which were being proposed by liberals and radicals, you know, these things were necessary. Corporations refused that. And so they started backing horrible candidates, terrible candidates, fascistic candidates, and most of those people, not all of them, win the Republican Party. Now, I mark 64. I mark 64 as the time when the GOP died. That from that moment onward, it was a shell and it was a zombie of what it once was. Now, that wouldn't become clear for almost 30 years. Because it took that long to purge the liberal and um, radical members from the party. Now, when I say from the party, you may be thinking, oh, well, it took 30 years to kick them out of the... um, out of out of out of uh, Congress and and the Senate, partially yes, but not only. Do not ever forget when you're talking about a party structure, you're talking also about um, what are they called? Tributaries and and, and feeder groups that are independent from the party, yet tied into the party and sometimes even an offshoot of an institution that is also engaged um, uh, in forming party policy. It took 30 years, and it is funny because I'm just now realizing that literally 30 years, because 94 was when the Republicans took back the House, it took them 30 years to separate those um the groups that the corporations didn't want in there to replace those groups with the ones that they wanted to. Um Roger Ailes brilliant memo from way back in I think it was 77. It was 76 or 77 where he's talking about what must be done uh to build GOP TV. He mentions in there several fraternities that needed to be infiltrated and changed. That is the type of strategic engagement that had to be involved in transferring the party. Now look, am I saying that, you know, there was some magic person behind the, um, the curtains pulling all these strings? Yes. Yes, I am. And I'm saying it only because there is ample proof to suggest that there was, if not one person, because I really don't believe it was one person, there was a group of people who had determined that the Republican Party should be something different than it was in the 1950s and they had triggered a plan, and they had started executing that plan, and they had started putting things into place as early as the 1960s. Now, what gets, what, what is often, um, what obscures this, I think, is the fact that there were still factions within the Republican Party, and those factions hadn't necessarily been eliminated yet. And again, that's what the entire 30 year span was about. You know, you had you had people who were still liberal. You had people who were still radical. And those people formed their own factions and then they had to be pushed out. They had to be moved aside. And it took years and it took years. You know, I I look at a person like um like George H.W. Bush and you know as people m- much more informed in all this than I am have talked about, you know, his connection with a lot of the moneyed people who ended up forming the basis of the Republican Party Over the next 30 years, starting in the mid-60s, suggests that there were people behind the scenes making these plans and executing them. I know how hard it is for us to accept this because, you know, conspiracies don't happen. But I'm serious about this. I'm serious about it. You can see the connections. You can see the evolution of plans. I mean, I've mentioned it before, the power memo. The um, memo that I mentioned earlier about the creation of GOP-TV. Then when you get into the ideas of um, the Cato uh, Institute, which mandate for leadership, mandate for leadership, this tome of like 1,100 pages that um, uh, Ronald Reagan's administration used, the same with the um, Hoover Institution, there's a retired professor from uh, San Francisco State University, Dr. Obatashaka. He's the one who introduced me to uh, the Hoover Institution's real impact in this country, especially when it comes to uh, domestic, um, domestic uh, policy and, and internal uh, policy domestic policy, I guess, is internal policy. (laughs) Anyway, uh, then mandate for leadership, which is wow. (laughs) Wow. You know, the Republican Party today could never... Well, then again, it was the Cato Institution, I think, who wrote that. No. No, no, no. Sorry. Wrong. Heritage Foundation wrote the mandate for leadership. Um, The Heritage Foundation could absolutely write one of those. Uh, There's five volumes to the mandate for leadership, spanning 25 years. 25 years. Um, And what's so funny is, so the first one is 1,100 pages. Every book after that is less. Is less. And finally, I think the last one came out in 2005. That one's like 180, 190 pages. To show you, when people say, oh, well, the Republicans, we really don't have much say in what the government, or the conservatives, we don't have much say. Dude, literally, the first Mandate for Leadership book was 1,100 pages, and it wasn't a skimpy 1,100 pages. These were real pages. And if you want an idea of this, you can download the original mandate for leadership online the fact that it was 1100 pages and then the last book ever published in the series in 2005 i think again that thing had i if it wasn't under 200 it was just slightly over 200 pages and i mean it's it it's not even the same size like length and width wise as, as um the mandate for leadership number 1 was which tells you who got their way in the previous 25 years it wasn't the people who were against the mandate for leadership in fact um oh there was a progressive institute that released something similar to that in 1994 and it was it was, almost, it was sad almost, because it was, you know, the first Mandate for Leadership was 1,100 pages. This thing was like maybe 400, maybe 300. I mean, it it, it didn't really. Anyway, anyway. Um, you add to that the Mandate for Leadership, you add to that the Cato Policy Handbooks, which most of you don't even know exist. Most of you don't even know they exist. Um, there's 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 multiple Cato um, policy handbooks, which have been given out to every Republican House and I, and I suspect Senate member. So there are literally groups that are planning this stuff, but we're not we're not encouraged to see it for what it is. These are conspiracies. Nonetheless, no matter what that is, though, I want to refocus you on the idea that I expressed earlier. The GOP died in the 1960s. It died. The problem is now, is that the GOP, having died in the 1960s, is seeking to do to everything around itself, which was done to it, it brings death and the sound of the crowd in my ear. Well, this was only going to be a segment and it'll be in an episode. If you have any questions comments, concerns, you can you always reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. I am I your brother, a by Amir Atis. Until the next one. War, peace
1: There's a shadow on the faces of the men who sent the money to the wars that are fought in places where the business just runs. On the radio, talk shows, and the TV,
0: you hear one thing again and again, how the USA stands for freedom, and we come to the aid of a friend. But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own, or the people who finally can't take anymore? And they pick up a gun, or a brick, or a stone And there are lights in the balance